Hi. Welcome to Crime and Time. And we're actually on the rocks. We are on the rocks today. I am very, very excited that we're on the rocks because I thought of that when you were making the drink. <laughs> like, oh, we're on the rocks. Yay, we did our job. Yay. So we're drinking the Call Me a Cab cocktail. I had fun researching this. So it's six ounces of lemonade, one ounce of vodka, and two to three ounces of Cabernet Sauvignon. So you just pour the vodka into your ice-filled glass, add the lemonade, and then just slowly pour in the cab, which is, there was supposed to be a little separation there. It's not. It looks no, it like ruby red together. cranberry juice. It looks like, yeah, it's a very red, red drink. And we're in these giant fishbowl glasses. Like, they're literally giant fishbowls. They're really pretty. And I don't, I'm glad you put a straw in it because I could not figure out how to drink out of that without pouring it all over myself. I kind of decided on lifting them like this. Oh, yeah, because we can't really, yeah, you could lift it that way, but it's weird. Yeah. Anyway, well, I am a little worried this is going to be gross. Probably will be. All right. Should we try it? Uh, yeah. Okay. Lemonade and cab down Lemonade the hatch. Lemonade and cab. That just sounds nasty. I'm letting you try it first. It's not as objectionable as I thought it would be, but I don't like it. No. I will completely drink it, especially after the weekend that I just had, but um, it's not my favorite. So are you saying that if you drink several of these, you might not remember your name? So speaking of the weekend I just had. <laughs> this is not what you think, people. This is not a drinking story. <laughs> no. Stone, this is a sober story. Stone freaking cold sober. Okay. So child number two is a gymnast and she competes in gym meets. And as parents, we have to volunteer for different jobs at the gym meet. And you would think that with my squeaky voice, I would not be appropriate to be put on the microphone, but everyone has decided that I am, I am the microphone voice. So I was down announcing and we do this thing as a fundraiser. They're called shout outs and the people can purchase a shout out for their gymnast. And you say the child's name and then whatever you want. And I get to say things like you go boobaloob. Or, if you get a medal, we'll buy you a milkshake. Well, everyone was watching child number two, and they purchased her a shout-out. My last name is rather complicated. When my husband and I were first dating, I made him show me his driver's license because I didn't believe that that was really his name. But I've had the name for 21-plus years, and I got through Scheinenberger right before and then i said a shout out to my own child and i mispronounced my own name it was pretty hilarious we all looked at each other i'm like is that her first day with that name <laughs> it's her own name <laughs> the entire table where i'm sitting downstairs on the floor with the gymnast trying to like be serious and get through the rest of this stuff cracked up and started pointing and laughing at me yeah we all did that too <laughs> and i'm trying but i'm trying to continue because there's like 200 people listening to me who don't know that I messed up my own name. Child number two, did you hear said <laughs> shout out? Yeah, and my coach actually, well, he knows my last name. So he looked at me and he was like, isn't your mom announcing? <laughs> <laughs> so out of the 200 people in the gym, only 150 realized that I had mispronounced my own last name. Yeah, I'm sure there were several people from other... Um, cities and gyms that were like oh that's sad she doesn't know how to say that person's name just not knowing that it was like literally your own name my own name yeah it was sad and it wasn't even the end so like yesterday uh, yesterday we i had been on the microphone for 27 and one half hours and i could still pronounce things except for nguyen spelled with a n and a k to be fair was you win. barely even had that name half your life I barely even had that name. I've had it more time. No, I've not. I have not yet had this name more time than I have not had this name. Yeah, but it's, but it's getting, getting close. close. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was 25 when I got this name, and I've had it for almost 22 years. So the Call Me a Cab is probably going to drive off without me next time. It for sure is going to drive off without me next time. It's not. Um, it's a waste of cab. Kinda. I'm not a super cab fan. I mean, I like it. I'll drink it. I'm not going to turn down a glass of wine. Whatever that was. Um, but I'm not going to drink this mixed with lemonade and vodka again. No. 
So what are you going to tell me about calling a cab? So I'm going to tell you about Daniel Hudson and Chaz Blackshear. And so this pretty much came from a season of uh, Deadly Couples. I can't remember what it's called. Hold on. Like a whole season? No, it's one episode. Snapped Killer Couples Season 8, Episode 8. <laughs> Snapped Killer Couples. Yeah. Killer Couples. So there's enough Killer Couples that they can make an entire season out of uh, it? More than that, because this is Season 8 of Killer Couples. <laughs> oh, I thought this was just like, a, this season we're doing Killer Couples, this season we're doing women. Okay, an entire show of Killer Couples that yeah. is on Season 8. All right. So the, I might have given away the lead. Apparently you did. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about Daniel Hudson and Chaz Blackshear. Okay. Um, and since I just told you this was called Killer, Killer Couples, Couples, it's probably going to give away something. But okay, Daniel Hudson and who Blackshear? Chaz. Chaz. Yeah. So I'm assuming this is a homosexual couple? No, Danielle. Danielle. Okay. Yes. So Daniel, Danielle Hudson <laughs> was a 21-year-old single mother. She had been going... Oh, honey. Yeah, she'd been going through some difficulties, and she was looking to turn her life around like she honestly really was trying. Uh, she grew up in the poorest part of Houston, and at one point she was pretty much just, like, right on the verge of being homeless. Oh, wow. Her father was never in the picture, and her mother was in and out of prison. So when she was younger, she was sent to live with her grandmother, but poor grandma had to work multiple jobs just to make ends meet right. for the household. So Danielle was just left to fend for herself. That is really sad that at that age, a grandmother is still having to struggle. So, mm -hmm. and probably partially because she's now faced with being a parent again. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, I don't have any more specifics on that situation, but yeah. yeah. So she, I mean... Good intentions, but ended up just right. at work all the time. Yeah. She was gone. Well, you have to keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. So as a teenager, Danielle began hanging out in the streets, and she started doing drugs, selling drugs, stealing cars, stealing clothing, jewelry. Um, she became involved in multiple abusive relationships because she was just looking for anyone to yep. love her. Love me, love me. Uh-huh. So Sad. at 19, she got pregnant, and soon after that, her boyfriend went to jail on drug charges. Mm. And that was the point that she realized that she needed to turn her life around because she did not want her son to grow up how she had grown up. Totally. Meanwhile, Chaz Blackshear was from Dallas. His father left him right after he was born, and his mother was in and out of jail for drug charges. Oh, my gosh. But luckily, Chaz's aunt and uncle got custody of him, and they did everything they could to try to prevent him from following in his parents' footsteps, and they even ended up adopting him. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, they had just, like, it looked like a really nice home. They talked to, um, they talked to Chaz's cousin, who was the um, son of, of Chaz's aunt and uncle that did adopt him. And they just seemed like really nice, normal family. He um, lived. They lived in the suburbs. Chaz did well in school. He, like I said, he had a supportive, supportive family. But deep down, and this is coming from an interview from him, uh -huh. he said that he felt like he was trying to be someone he wouldn't. He wasn't. Oh wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I just find this interesting with the whole like nature versus nurture question, because she did not. She had a bad nature with with the you know drugs and prison and blah blah in, in and out of the picture but then she didn't necessarily have the greatest nurture either because grandma wasn't there through no fault of her own but she wasn't physically mm -hmm. there meanwhile but, chaz had a very similar early life nature but his nurture he had a two-parent home that was loving and mm -hmm. wanted him and was providing for him yeah, and he was given good opportunities like right. with his education and like you know but he ended up in the same place yeah I just find that interesting. And I'm not saying that it's that way for everything at all. Like, don't Oh, no, it's email for sure not. Things. Because if you look at, like, families with multiple children, children could not be more different from each other. Oh, for sure. Night and day with the same parents. Mm -hmm. And you can also have the opposite effect where there's, um, you know, quote-unquote bad nature and quote-unquote bad nurture, and they turn out to be brilliant. We've mm -hmm. done episodes on people like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, Chaz... Um, was into rap music he idolized rappers and he wanted to be a rap star of course he did his aunt and uncle <laughs> quote i put his aunt and uncle so it was easier to keep track of who they were but oh, for sure but they were his parents they were his parents 
Um, they didn't support his dream and they convinced him to join the Navy. So Chaz actually agreed to that mostly just to get out of the suburbs and to like get some life experience. Right. So he did his two years in the Navy, but after that music was the only thing that was on his mind. So he was, that was really what he wanted to do. He was mm-hmm. committed to it. Yeah. So he had saved up money while in the Navy and he used this to move to Houston and that's where he decided to start his rap career. I've not heard of a lot of rappers coming out of Houston. Are you really into the rap community? <laughs> I'm, not. I'm not. I'm not really into the rap community, but Houston just does not seem like the um, hot it's not of the music industry. It's, it's not Atlanta. It's not Atlanta. It's not Nashville. It's not LA. I'm a tad confused. Yeah. Well, that's where he went. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so he's there and he knew that if he really wanted to pursue his career as a rapper, he would need some street cred. Because he had none. Oh. Homeboy was a Navy veteran and lived in the suburbs. <laughs> That's not very straight. No. <laughs> so anyway, Chaz and Danielle finally had the opportunity to meet. Um, they This was in Houston. And they met at a house party. And they had instant chemistry. And as soon as they met, they became inseparable. Okay. So aside from their phys- from the physical attraction between both of them, for Chaz, Danielle had street cred because of her past. Right. And he was all about that. He was like, that's what I need to help with my rap career. But on the other hand, for Danielle, she, as being someone who's looking to turn her life around, found this really good guy. Who is a Navy veteran and comes came, from the suburbs to yeah, parent home. and Came from a stable family, normal home. She never had that. So she was just like, this is like Okay, do ideal. you know how many people that happens to? It's sad though because it's, it's like this. really sad. It's like this um, self-fulfilling prophecy of yes, disaster. it is. I literally had some friends who they were horrible together it was horrible 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 disastrous fights all the time blah 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 but he was looking for a strong stable woman who knew how to take care of her shit and she was a strong stable woman who since she was a teenager had been the one in charge and taking care of everything and she was looking for someone who was fun to play and be silly with and he was the silly play you know Mm -hmm. goof off guy so they were both looking for what they were but they were looking for it so that they could change their life to the opposite yeah and that doesn't work when they're both looking for that yes boom explosion it didn't work yeah but well without giving too much away it didn't work for Chaz and Daniel either really I'm surprised I know so meanwhile you know they're fostering this relationship they wanted to move in together but um, they didn't have any money to get a place of their own, so they were bouncing around from place to place. I was just going to say, where are they living? Yeah, they, they were couch home. surfing. Um, meanwhile, remember, Danielle has a son. Right. How do you sleep on the couch with your boyfriend and your kid? Yeah. Danielle, though, she <coughs> thought, you know, it was fine because she felt like for once in her life she had a stable relationship mm-hmm. and a stable, like, somewhat stable life- lifestyle. And they Chad- had a house, but... You know, same yeah. guy. Same guy. And he was, a, you know, a good guy in, you know, this respect. <laughs> so for Chaz, as I mentioned before, Danielle became his muse. And he used all of her life and hardships to write his rap songs. So he's stealing her bio. Yeah. Okay. And he even helped raise Danielle's son and became a fa- father figure to him, which of course Danielle ate up because yep. she, neither one of them ever had a father. Right. Well, I mean, I guess Chaz did because he, 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 he had was raised uncle. by his aunt yeah. and uncle, but well, that's very nice for the boy. Mm-hmm. How old is the boy at this point? Two. Two. Oh, fun age. Yeah. And he like, just from, well, this is going to be the stupidest thing I'm going to say all day, but the <laughs> reenactment <laughs> from the reenactment, he looked like a really cute kid. <laughs> really cute actor to play the kid (laughs) okay i'm stupid (laughs) i'm really really tired (laughs) oh i asked child number one last night after we were on like hour 27 of volunteering not in a row but just all in one weekend and um I said, so are you punch drunk? And she's like, what's that? I'm like, you know, when you get really tired, you get silly. She had no idea what I was talking about. But we have both witnessed her be that tired. Yeah. I've been like that many a time. Oh, yeah. 
when I used to work nights, it would be about two or three in the morning. And my crew that I worked with that I really enjoyed, like, uh-huh. you would just find the stupidest things. We funny. would all get like that. And we would just be like, laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing and then the next morning i would be telling the other co-workers that came in for day shift about it and they just look at you like what that's not funny yeah like i kind of feel like the name story was funnier to me <laughs> because i was very tired well when you look back and think about me recollecting about the child actor and that he was a cute child <laughs> and i'm not tired oh my Okay, okay so, tell me about the cute child actor. <laughs> he was a cute child. Um, that's it. So anyway, 2010? I was just wondering what year this was. 2010, things start going downhill for Danielle oh, and Chaz. no! I can't imagine why. They had such a sable stolid relationship built on a real strong foundation. Yes, they did. And <clears throat> the city of Houston was feeling the effects of that stable relationship. Huh? So... Here, here we, here we get into it. Okay. So October fourteenth, two thousand ten, in the city of Houston, a patrol officer noticed a suspicious vehicle parked in an otherwise empty parking lot of a downtown office building. Okay. So it's like the middle of the night. There shouldn't be anyone parked at an office building. Right. Parking lot, maybe like security or whatever. But this was completely empty, except for in the very center of the parking lot was a yellow cab. So okay. the officer stopped he approached the vehicle and he noticed that the windows were all fogged up so i'm sure like we've all had thoughts about oh it's one of those it's kind one of, of those situations but i've been in those vehicles with the windows all fogged up this was not the case so as he got closer he realized that it wasn't condensation or fog it was smoke he oh. um realized that there had been some kind of fire inside the vehicle and when he opened the driver's side door there was oh, that a- wasn't where my brain went no <laughs> So he opens the driver's side door, and there's a man sitting in the cab. He's badly burned. He was still belted to the seat, and all he could tell is that it was the body of a middle-aged man. Oh. Yeah. So they quickly called homicide and fire investigators to the scene, because the man was deceased, and they were able to tell that it was obvious that someone had intentionally set the cab on fire. Um, from the smell, they could tell that there was an accelerant used. Uh-huh. And whoever set the blaze, it appeared that they wanted to destroy the evidence, but they weren't successful because they closed all the doors of the cab. So there's no oxygen. There was no oxygen, so the fire extinguished itself. So was the man set on fire prior to his death or after? Well, funny you ask because my very next sentence is, an inspection of the body revealed that the man didn't die in the fire. He had been shot. Okay, this is going to sound like a very cold, callous statement, but thank goodness, because I think burning alive would be one of the most frightening, horrific things possible. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So the killers... Not the big shots are walking in the park. But. No, but if it's instant, instant's yes. always better than One of the two, prolonged. I'm going to pick the bullet. Yeah. So the killers have ransacked the cab, and this suggested to investigators that they the man had been killed during the course of an armed robbery... Why are they robbing a cabbie in 2010? Isn't everything on yeah, you would credit think card so. by then? I would, I'm recollecting that. So two things immediately had Houston police on edge. Number one was the fact that it was a pretty violent scene, yeah. as you can imagine. And number two is the fact that two days prior, police had responded to a similar scene. Oh. So 48 hours prior... Or in less than 48 hours, two yellow cab driver drivers had been murdered. That's sad. Mm-hmm. They're just doing their job. They're doing their job. That's it. Yeah. So two days earlier, on October 12th, a city worker who was on his way to work made an unusual discovery. He noticed something at the bottom of a drainage ditch. And when he investigated, he noticed it was a body of a man covered in blood and dirt. So he called 911 and officers were there in minutes. The man had been shot twice, and he'd been rolled into a ditch. His pockets pockets were pulled out, and the police were unable to find his wallet or ID. So they're doing different things to them. They're not burning them all inside the cab. So this is like progression or whatever right, you call it. Right, because this one I'm talking about now is actually the first uh-huh. murder. So they obviously decided that for whatever reason, for the second, that they needed to burn him to try to get rid of evidence. Interesting. So... Not to, like, 
steal your thunder or give anything away, but I'm really curious about what is the transition from, hey, we're kind of couch surfing and hanging out and you want street cred to robbing and murdering cab drivers. Where'd yeah. that leap happen? I don't know that I can leap. I don't know that I can fully answer it, but later on we'll get to a little bit okay. of some rationale. So a short distance away from the scene, they discovered a cell phone and a passport. And the passport later identified the man as 32-year-old Mohammed El Sayed. And the fact that his wallet was missing led police to believe that he was also the victim of a robbery, but they had nothing else to go on. And this is the body in the ditch. Yes. Okay. So they went to talk to Muhammad's family, obviously to inform them that Muhammad was dead, but also to see if oh. there was any like information or leads they could gather. Right. Because if you just find one body, you just think, well, something happened to this person. You don't necessarily think pattern mm-hmm. until there's more to, to form a pattern. Yeah. See, that's how patterns work. Mm-hmm. There's more than one. There's more than one. And so also at this time, remember, <laughs> they just found him alone, like, his cab was not there, so they Did, didn't even they didn't know, he, know was, he was a cab driver. They didn't know he was a taxi driver. That makes sense. So when they talked to the family, they learned that he w- he was a taxi driver driver, and that he worked to support his wife and two children. And according to his family, Muhammad had left for his shift the night before. He worked nights, and he never returned, and he had stopped answering any phone calls. Oh. So police put out a bolo for the cab, like a citywide bolo. And meanwhile... Houston was in fear because by this time, after the second murder had occurred, we got a problem on our hands. Yeah. So cabbies are calling in sick. Chaz and Danielle reportedly were also showing fear. Chaz even remarked to a cab driver that it was pretty scary what was going on. And as he left, Chad, Chaz also told the cab, dri- cab driver, quote unquote, well, you be careful. You never know who rides in your cab. Okay. I'm making a leap in that Chaz and Danielle are the murderers and they're taking additional cabs other than the one that they're murdering. Why? I mean, the story is the show is called killer couples, right? But I'm saying how often do you take a cab in your day to day life? Not in New York city. Zero with a right. I can count on one hand, the amount of times I've been in a cab in my own home. To city. be honest, um, one of my coworkers and I went to Taste of Chico, and we left from her house, and I was like, "Well, let's get an Uber." So we tried to get an Uber, tried to get a Lyft, no- nothing was available. So we ended up getting there a different way. And then after we got there, I go, "We could have called a cab. We, we didn't even think about cab. it." Well, prior to Uber and Lyft, you and I have taken a cab. We took a cab to a casino up in the hills to go to a party. That's true. That was great. Yes. I took a cab home one time when the horse that I was riding was giving me a weird heebie-jeebie vibe and turned out two weeks later, he threw his rider and broke her hip. But my father-in-law said, oh, this horse is fine. And then another time in the 90s, I took a cab home from a date. Those are the three times I've taken a cab in my own city. Yeah, I can't really count many more times than that. So it's just, it's curious to me that he's just getting in cabs and saying, you never know who's going to be in your cab. Like, is he trying to establish an alibi that, oh, I take cabs all the time. I don't murder everyone I get in. I don't, yeah, I didn't discover too much about that. I'm sorry. I I get on little details that make no difference and harp and hound you and it's annoying. So Muhammad's cab was eventually located and it was all the way across town from where Muhammad's body had been found. It, I was curious if they were using it for transportation, like if they were using that as their car. I don't know that, I don't think they did use it as their car. I think they ditched it as far away as possible from where right, the body which was. makes more sense. So the, they checked it for fingerprints. It had been wiped clean, but they did find blood and shell casings inside the door well. And this suggested that the killer had shot Muhammad while he was sitting inside his cab, which also coincides with the second murder. Uh-huh. So investigators decided that the similarities between the two killings were way too many to ignore. The motives were similar robbery. Uh, There were shell casings left behind and they were both cab cab drivers. So investigators believe that someone was targeting Houston cab drivers and they were starting to wonder if there was a serial killer on the loose. So they're at like code red right now. Cause they got some splaining to do like what's going on in the city. They had more than one. There's a pattern. Yeah. There's a pattern. <laughs> I did take kindergarten. I 
I understand what a pattern is, but I just can't figure it out for some reason. So at the second crime scene where the killers had set fire to hide evidence, they the killers had made an error. I mentioned this before. Since they shut all the car doors, it caused the fire to extinguish. So inside the cab, detectives were able to find the driver's wallet still intact. And they also found shell casings from a 380 handgun. So forensics teams are busy processes, processing all the evidence and detectives went back to the scene of the first killing to see if they could discover any more clues that might link the two. Right. The scene of the body dump or the scene of the, the body cab? dump? Yeah. So investigators contacted Mohammed's cab company and they learned that his last fare had been around 2 a.m. on the morning of his murder. And when they reviewed the dispatch recordings from the cab company, police learned that Mohammed had been, been dispatched to pick up a young woman. And they... Played the recording. So it's using her as bait. The voice was female and she was using the name Shantae. And when they ran the phone number, they found it came back to a payphone at a gas station, which was like really close to where Muhammad was found. I didn't know there were any payphones back in 2010. I thought they're all gone. No. The last time I used a payphone was 1995. I have no idea when the last time was. I know that for a fact because I was dating current husband and i would use a payphone to call him because we didn't have cell phones yet and i didn't want to call him from my home phone because i didn't want people to know <laughs> i had a boyfriend <laughs> so police go to the gas station to try to check out the surveillance video and when they got there they were told that the camera that faced the area was not working and so again they have nothing to go on they like realize that the, the key to find to this case was to try to find out who Shantae was. So they were able to find more clues though, that did link the two crimes. They found a wallet under the seat of the burned cab. And as I mentioned, it didn't burn. So this identified the deceased driver as 50 year old blaze Nwake Naka. And he, how worked, does that link him to the other guy? Well, he worked for the same cab company as Muhammad. Oh. And they also pulled two 380 bullets from Blaze's body, and the a ballistics match confirmed that the 380 bullets for both murders matched. And so investigators called the cab company again, and they found that Blaze's cab had been dispatched to the same block where Mohammed had been sent to pick up his last fare, and a recording of the call confirmed it was the same female, and she had asked, been asked to be taken to the same address both times, which I don't know if this is real or not, but they in the show they kept saying... 1905 Derry Ashford. Is that a real address? I don't know. I didn't look it up. Oh, okay. Google it. Google it. <laughs> so detectives contacted building security in the, um, for the lot. The, it was an office space. So they oh. talked to the building security people. And luckily in this instance, there was security cameras that were focused on the area and it showed the whole thing. They saw the murder. They saw the whole That's thing. That's crazy. So the video shows a black female. She gets out of the cab. She looks directly at the video camera. I don't think she realized she was looking at the video she camera. She must not have. Yeah. But um, then it shows her getting back in the cab. And then you can see that she's not alone. A second person gets out and he walks around. It's a black male. And then there's two muzzle flashes visible oh in the video. Then the video shows... That's Horrible. Yeah, you can see the whole thing. They didn't show that part of it, but they did show certain instances of it. Yeah. I'm sure the video is not super graphic because it's probably from far away, like a security camera would be, but still to know what was happening when you see those flashes of light. Yeah. And then they show both suspects setting the cab on fire and then they flee the scene. They did show the part where they're fleeing the scene, mm -hmm. but they didn't show like the muzzle flashes of the or the fire. actual people. Yeah. Like the actual footage. Yeah. Wow. And then, so investigators are watching the video and they watch what's going on and they realized the way the two suspects were working together, that it had to be like a rehearsed plan. It wasn't just like a thing that happened. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So the video is kind of grainy. So they were having trouble identifying the male and female, but, um, hey, I know who they are, <laughs> <laughs> but obviously investigators were like, Number one thing we need to do is identify these two people. Why in the hell do you think that's a good idea? I mean, you have a child. Not that having a child makes you a smarter person, but you're going to get caught. Mm-hmm. Run. Yeah. Can't run. So dumb. So dumb. So police, I thought this was kind of interesting and smart. 
not the first part of it, but the second part. But police focused their manhunt on the area where the crimes occurred, and it was a pretty small area between the gas station, the body dump, the office space. And so they were like, it's a basically a one square mile area. So they just yeah. saturated the area. Right. They believed that the suspects were staying in this area, and based on the video evidence, they knew where they should begin their search. So the video shows the two of them running from the burning cab in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. That direction happened to be towards an apartment complex, and so that's where they started searching. Okay. So they do some canvassing. Nobody at the apartment complex had reported seeing anything suspicious. The manager told police that they had no record of a renter named Shantae, which, duh, she's using right. a fake name. Obvi. So police showed the manager an image from the surveillance video, the one where she's kind of facing the camera. Uh-huh. And he, the manager looked at it, and he's like, yeah, I think I do recognize her, but her name's not Shantae, it's Crystal Jones. But Crystal Jones not her name either. Well, so he was basically like, yeah, go look at Crystal Jones. She's not a good tenant. She had money issues. She was falling behind on rent. I was about to evict her, but all of a sudden she showed up with a wad of cash. But she said she sold her car. Right. The car that he's seen parked in the driveway all the time. Yeah. So anyway, police run with it. They surround Crystal Jones's apartment and they're just waiting for her to return. She wasn't home. And so 2 a.m. the next morning, she comes home, police detain her. And unfortunately, and I put in quotes, well, not for her. (laughs) She did not resemble the woman in the security video at all. Seriously. Not at all. Totally different person. Yeah. Not only that. So this chick really sold her car. Yeah. Her voice was also very different than the female from the cab recording. And she had a receipt for the car she sold to pay her rent. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So the managers. I apologize, Crystal. (laughs) I thought you were Nicole or Danielle. The manager, I think, just didn't really like Crystal Jones. Right. And was like, it's probably her. That's really (laughs) rude. Bad manager. I know. So Houston police are under a lot of pressure to catch these killers. Forensic investigators went over and over the evidence and doing some more ballistic evidence, it showed that all of the shell casings had been fired by a specific handgun, which was a Cobra 380. And it's because the specific Cobra 380 makes distinct marks that none mm-hmm. of the other 380s make. Okay. So they checked records for any lost or stolen reports of Cobra 380s recently. I was going to say, for some reason, is that Navy issue? Not sure why a Navy man would need a gun, but... It's not. Okay. So they came up with a match. Um, Edit that out. That sounds dumb. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a Navy brat. I should know better. A few weeks before um, the murder started, a gun owner had reported his Cobra 380 pistol had been stolen. And it was during the time where he had two house guests who were staying with him. And when... Oh, I know who they are. Yeah. When they left, his Cobra 380 had gone missing. So he filed a police report and he gave descriptions of the couple and it matched the um, people from the surveillance video. And so he knows them well enough to lend them their his couch. Like, hey, yeah, sure, stay over. I don't know. I had a direction. I'm really tired. <laughs> but um, what's more is the gun owner gave police the names of the couple. Danielle Hudson and Chaz Blackshear. I've heard those names before. Mm-hmm. So around the same time, forensics were able to identify a latent print um, from the crime scene, and it belonged Ooh. to Chaz Blackshear. Who they have his prints because he was in the Navy. Well, no, they got his prints from a drug possession charge from just a few months earlier. So he's getting a street cred. Yeah, he's getting his street cred. Um, his arrest report listed his home address and a cell phone, but unfortunately he'd already moved from that address, and his cell phone was no longer in service. It was a prepaid um, phone and he had already used up all his minutes. So detectives, they just, they decide to try to trick him. So they asked the cell phone company to add more minutes and like do it like a fake promotional offer. Uh huh. So the, the detectives could, um, ping his location. Did he still have the phone though? Uh, they didn't know, but they knew that he had had it just a, up to a couple weeks earlier, but he ran out yeah. of minutes. Like we bought when we bought, Child number one, her first phone, we got her like a prepaid thing and then we just never used it and never, we never used any of the minutes, but we wanted her to have it in case of emergencies and then we ended up just like throwing it away. Yeah. Well, they, so they did it. The, um, Chaz fell for it. He got this promotion like, here, you get like whatever free minutes. 
And so they he, catch people that way so often. Yeah, so he act, reactivated his phone, and they were able to get his location. And um, there, it came back to an apartment building, and obviously Daniel was with him. But luckily, Daniel's son was not. He, he was staying with Daniel's grandmother. So they go yes, there, they goodness. detain him, and as soon as they saw and heard Danielle, they knew instantly that it, it, it was, was her. her. Yeah. Wow. So they play, they take him into, they take him under arrest, they place him in different interrogation rooms, and Chaz said that he and Danielle had been in Blaze's cab, but they were just customers, they weren't killers, and they, <laughs> investigators confronted him with the video evidence, but Chaz still was like, nope, we're innocent. Danielle, though, she completely spilled the beans. <gasps> You're kidding. Completely. So he is the one who grew up with mommy and daddy in the suburbs, and he has enough street cred to like, nope, 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 not us, not us, not us. And she's this big street cred hanging on the street mama, and yep, it was me. Sorry. Yeah, she, but, <laughs> so she basically laid the whole thing out, but she did say oh my that she was horrified by what they had done, but, of course but she Chaz, was. Chaz wasn't bothered by it, and that after... She said that after not getting enough money from the first cab driver, Chaz ordered her to help him rob another cab. So the total amount they made from robbing and killing two people was $300. That's yeah, awful. They were both charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Police confronted Chaz with Daniel's written confession, and he agreed to also confess, but only if he was allowed to see her one more time. Oh, poor baby. Yeah. But they agree to it. They they let her see him. I just mean he's like lovesick. Yeah. That's dumb. It wasn't her idea. No. They let her they listened in on the conversation when they let them see each other. Uh-huh. And it what they found out is that they had agreed that Chaz would take the fall if they had been caught. But whose idea was the initial thing? It doesn't it doesn't say. Uh-uh. So they both That's sad. I know. They both pled guilty. Chaz pled guilty to two counts of first degree murder and received life in prison without possibility of parole. Danielle um, pled guilty to a plea bargain deal of aggravated murder and she was sentenced to 40 years in prison. She'll be eligible for parole in 2030 when she's 42 years old and her grandmother has custody of her son. So this poor grandma not only raised her kids, her grandkids, now she's raising her great grandkid. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, grandma. And working probably three jobs still. Yes. She's got to be in her 70s. Yeah, I don't... It didn't give any of that information, but um, they did have quite a few interviews with Chaz on the... um, Oh, really? Yeah. He was all about it. He was just, like, talking about his rap career, talking about... He didn't really talk so much about the crimes, just more about his and Danielle's relationship. Are they still together? quote unquote no it didn't seem like it because he was talking about her in past tense so oh interesting so that's call me a cab. that's call me a cab okay so i went obviously history sort of i hope yeah because mm-hmm. that's you know i'm time that's my thing um however in september in california um governor gavin newsom um, signed a new law to give millions of workers protection, like minimum wage, sick leave, health insurance. Sounds great, right? Yeah, I see where you're going with this. If you're not from California, this <laughs> might, like, shook you a little bit. Yeah. But. So um, it is known as the gig workers law. So it is primarily aimed to get rid of Uber and Lyft in our area. Like, they, I don't know that they necessarily want to get rid of them, but they want to, they feel that the workers are being exploited by Uber and Lyft. Now, I have a friend who drove for Uber and she had a full-time job. She did it because she needed extra money. It wasn't her full-time thing. She didn't benefits from it. She didn't need. Yeah, she just wanted to make some extra. She just wanted to make some extra cash. Some extra cheddar. Yes. So if you require these companies to provide all of these things for these people, they're not going to do it. Like right. they're just not going to be here. They just won't have yeah. so Uber anyway, and Lyft. So it's known as the gig workers law. It's primarily aimed at Uber and Lyft. It's claiming that the ride sharing hailing companies have mislabeled their workers as independent contractors and not employees. It went into effect on January 1st of this year. Um, the companies have vowed to fight it and to spend whatever they needed to fight it. They are trying to get a ballot measure to quote unquote, regulate the gig workers economy. 
Um, Gavin Newsom has said that he thinks this is the next step in getting workers together. The next step is to get workers together and organize them. So he wants an Uber union. union. Now, Uber workers have, they have gone on strike and fought for different things. And some of them have been granted, but he wants to unionize the whole thing. That's not the kind of job it is. That's not, yeah, it's not what it is. Everybody that I know that has driven Uber or Lyft do it like you were mentioning as like an extra thing. Right. Extra money. I work at a winery as an extra thing. I don't expect them to provide me health insurance. Right. Or sick leave or whatever. So anyway, um, Newsom has said he thinks, yeah. Uber and Lyft and Postmates filed a suit shortly after um, the first of the year that is challenging the new law, AB5. It's also affecting other other things like um, the LA Times, I guess, had a thing that they're in many other papers across the country. They're no longer going to be able to hire freelance writers from California because of this law. Yeah, this is there's so many problems with this law. Oh, like, nurses. I just recently, yeah, truck drivers. Mm-hmm. So when this law affects, while this law affects more than just Uber, um, it and Lyft drivers, it was primar- primarily aimed at combating those companies. So this law affects mostly it affects more than just Uber and Lyft, but it's primarily aimed at them, and it is not the first legislation aimed at cab companies or ride-sharing companies that's been around. The very first one was in 1635. Oh, gosh. What what kind of um, smartphone did you use to summon your Uber? So in 1635, Parliament passed the Hackney Carriage Act. And that was so that Hackney Carriage... Hackney carriages have been operated operating as a carriages for hire in London since 1621, and they finally decided they needed to do some sort of regulation. Another law was passed in 1654 to clear with the many to clean up the many inconveniences from the increase and in irregularity of the hackney carriages. Hackney carriages were big, and they were a problem in the street. Like there was just. It was very congested and they were with the deliveries and the different things that were taking place. Because you have to remember, this is a major urban city with horse and buggies. Yeah, yeah. And trying to maneuver those streets. And there was not really the traffic codes, etc. that there is or was later. Um, so in 1662, the first licensing act was passed and it was established that the Commission of Scotland Yard to regulate cabs and hackney carriages. In 1662, the they acted as a, they limited the number of carriages that were able to operate in London to 400. So this is gonna okay. be a repeated thing. They're going to say, okay, we can't get away from this industry, so we're going to limit the amount of them that can be on the street at any one time. Interesting. Yeah, so all the way in 1662, they're doing this. So it was 400. In 1679, they increased that amount to 700. Oh, wow. That's almost double. Yes, but it it took, well, I guess it's only 12 or 13 years. So um, a big innovation in carriages for hire came in 1834. So it kind of stayed stagnant for a couple hundred years. And that was when Joseph Hansom from York... He was a York architect. He modified the carriage to make it smaller and lighter. So that was one of the big problems, as I mentioned, was the size. It was just too big. It couldn't get around in the city. So Handsome made a two-wheel carriage that still sat for people in the carriage, and the driver was then kind of perched at the end on the top. Kind of like you've seen in like Central Park, like those kind of carriages are what I'm picturing. But Well, I don't know, because he's there's two wheels... And then a big box that the people sit in and the wheels are attached to the horse. Obviously it could also be pulled with one horse. And now the driver is on the top of the carriage in the back sort of counter levered hanging off the edge. Oh, okay. I got it. I wouldn't want to drive one. It would be scary because I'd be afraid I'd fall out on my head. So anyway, handsome cabs. That's what they were ended up being called. Um, smaller, lighter, could be operated by one person. It was easy. It could 
right move in and out quickly um around the streets and this just became huge um in 1837 thornton blackburn and his wife oh hired cabs all over the place now so if you are a fan of our podcast a while ago we did a, a podcast on um toronto and i talked about the family that did the brewery Gooder in toronto yes i like toronto people mm. i have another sweet feel-good story about toronto so in 1837 thornton blackburn and his wife established the first cab company in toronto it was called city it was called the city um why did they choose toronto canada for the great weather that and the fact that they were runaway slaves oh okay yeah so um i'm not gonna do a lot with them but carolyn schwartz schwartz frost wrote a three carolyn smarts frost s-m-a-r-d-z wrote a 350 page book called i've got a home in glory land a lost tale of the underground railroad I put it on my book list. I want to read it, but it is a full detailed account of um, Thornton Blackburn and his wife. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I want to read it, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about their story. So check out her book. Go get it. Go read it. It should. It would be good. So Carolyn got interested in this story in 1995 when the area where their home had been located was being renovated or excavated to put in a new high school and they kept finding all of these artifacts and they they everybody knew about this cab company and blah 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 and oh it's a cute it's a cab company started by these former slaves whatever but then they started finding all these artifacts from their home and they found out how much they really did for the community so that's when she got fascinated by the story so Thornton and his wife were slaves living in Kentucky and they hadn't been married very long. She was, he was 19 and she was 21. They hadn't been married very long and they found out that Lucy, the wife, was going to be sold down south to New Orleans. Oh, just her by just herself? Just her by herself. Happened all the time. They would sell moms, children. It was horrid. But so they're going to sell her and they, they didn't want to be broken apart. They just got married. So they made a plan and they obtained some forged freedom papers. They dressed in their very best clothes and they decided to take a walk prior to Lucy being sold. Well, they took a walk down by the docks and they just walked right onto a boat. Oh, good for them. Yes, good for them. So they get on this boat um, and the boat, it was a steamboat and it took them to Cincinnati, Ohio. And in Cincinnati, they, they arrived on the 4th of July, which is kind of cool. And when they're in Cincinnati, they lived there for a bit and they finally made their way to detroit and they settled in detroit in 1831 they lived there for two years just living their lives in michigan and then something bad happened yes something bad happened um kentucky slave fetchers or whatever they were called i know there's a name for them but i can't think of it right now um they somebody recognized the couple and they had them arrested so they put them in jail and they had made plans for them to return to Kentucky. So remember they're in Michigan and Michigan is a free state. So while they're in jail, Lucy gets a visitor by her dear friend, Mrs. George French. And Mrs. George French shows up, visits Lucy. While they're visiting, they switch clothes. Mrs. French stays in jail and Lucy sneaks out of jail and she sneaks right down to the river and she gets on a boat and she goes to Canada. What happened to the friend, though? The friend. Well, they, when they found out the friend wasn't the person they thought. I it was. would imagine yes, because this is this is the 1830s, so I would imagine she had to have some sort of papers proving who she was, and just be like, "I'm not who you think I am. I'm this person. I'm right. free." But that's still such a huge risk yeah. because there's obviously no photos. So how do you prove that that's really you? DNA test. Yeah, <laughs> DNA tests were all the rage in the 1830s. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think that one of the real heroes was Mrs. George French because yeah, for sure. she was willing to do this. That's really brave. Yes, super brave. So getting Thornton out was a lot more difficult. He was bound and shackled and guarded because he's, you know, such a super threat. So he is about to be put on whatever transportation to be sent back to Kentucky and 
the entirety of Detroit's black community showed up, rammed the jail. There were 400 men that stormed the jail. In the compl- in all of the confusion, Sleepy Polly and Daddy Walker <laughs> used the commotion to grab Thornton and get him out and put him on a boat to go to oh, Canada. To, they just to, went to pure chaos. They just went pure chaos, yes. So we're going to sneak her out all stealth-like, and we're just going to, like make everything crazy to get him out yeah but it worked because they both got over to canada so the riots however in i wonder Detroit, though, did they each know that they were bound for canada because how did they reunite well they do reunite but i don't there was not enough information to find out whether this was a premeditated plan oh i'm sure i'm reading this book i am finding this book and reading this book um again it is i'll look i'll tell you again later so um they the riots in michigan lasted for two days this was one of the very first race riots one of the most violent ones to take place in detroit um the local sheriff was sadly killed but um it prompted the first riot commission ever to be formed first one i've ever heard of yeah to deal with that type of situation but so the couple gets back together they meet in essex county they took Thornton to jail immediately when they arrived in Essex County, but he was only there for a little while because thankfully the jailer in Essex was an abolitionist. And so when he was contacted by the Michigan Territory governor and told to return Thornton to them, he said, um, so it was Major General Sir John Calboon, who was the lieutenant governor of the Upper Canada, he refused to return Thornton. He said, your laws don't apply here. Your laws have killed too many people. We don't agree with them, and we're not giving him back. Good for him. I know, right? In 1830, to say that, that's that seems huge to me. So they eventually settled down in Toronto in 1834. Thornton worked as a waiter at the Osgood Hall. While he was working there, he noticed that Toronto didn't have any sort of carriage service or ride sharing service. So he took, he saved and saved and saved. He took the money that they had saved and he made blueprints for a carriage. I do not know whether it was modeled. I think it was modeled after the handsome cab because from the pictures that I have seen, the sketches obviously that I have seen, it was a two-wheeled model. So he had this carriage built. It was a box cab. It was painted red and yellow. It was pulled by one horse and he called it the city. He operated it all by himself. He opened in 1837. The driver's box, however, unlike the handsome cab was in the front and the box itself carried four passengers. Um, they did very well. He continued to run the cab himself. He made enough money that eventually he they could do other things and help other people. Um, he went back to Kentucky to get his mom. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Underground Railroad, the whole way there, the whole way back, managed to get his mother out. He already had a brother living in Canada that they never really said if he had escaped earlier or why the brother was there. But he, the brother was there and kind of helped them with everything um eventually they this was the very first cab service in upper canada eventually they ended up with several cabs they had a modest business they used the money to buy other homes around the area and they used the homes to rent inexpensively very modestly to former slaves who had escaped to canada to oh, get wow. them he started had a on whole thing feet. oh he had a whole thing and so they there's a lot of um plaques and statues and things dedicated to him in Canada. There's some in Kentucky and I believe there's also some in Detroit that are that after they figured out who these people were and what heroes and amazing people they were, they dedicated more to them. So the couple lived until the 1890s. They died within 5 years of each other. He died first and then she died later. And so that's the wonderful couple from Toronto that I, I don't know. It's every story that we've done about Canada people, they're just kind people. <laughs> Except for, the, Except for like, yours. You've yeah. done some that have not been kind people. Every yeah, story that no, I've done, they've been kind people. They were like bank robber cop killers. So Yes, that's true. Um, so cab company, still on the cabs. Cab business expanded, changed. Thornton had his little awesome business up there in Canada. Um, the carriage for hire or cab expanded all over the world. Every major city had one. Um, they began, they got their name as the taxi cab 
1891 after the invention of the taximeter by Wilhelm Brunn of Germany. He, this was the first accurate way to measure the distance with time traveled by a vehicle to determine the fare. Okay, so it was the first, like, meter. Yeah, so prior to that, they had they figured it out some way, but he was the one who, okay, we've gone this far, I'll charge you this much. Walter Beasley introduced a fleet of electric cabs to London in 1897. So... The electric car is not new. No. But it didn't work out. They called them the Hummingbird because they had a hum. Aw, cute. Yeah. In 1897, the electric cab was also introduced to New York. Um, the Samuels Electric Carriage and Wagon Company ran 12 electric handsome cabs all over the city. But in 1898, they changed hands and they had 62 cabs running. However, um, there was a problem in that the first automobile accident that fatally wounded someone was a cab oh yeah that'll do it yeah so it was 68 year old henry bliss he was helping a friend out of a carriage and someone lost control of their cab and smashed into him and killed him so the electric cab company kind of died unfortunate yes by um 1900 though they they were still trying to make it a go so two years later they're still working there's a thousand electric cabs running in the city but by january 1907 a fire completely destroyed the fleet so they've got the dead guy then they have a fire and then they have a depression in 1907 that's all bad news it's all bad news so they kept getting hit in the face and by 1907 with the depression it's done they, the electric cab company just folded their doors. They're out. Um, and at that point, the city went back to horse-drawn carriages. But Henry Allen then had an idea after being charged $5 for a ride that was three-quarters of a mile. Today, that would be about $140. Um, yeah, I'm trying to... I was like, okay, I realize that's a lot of money back a then, lot of money. but that's more than I would even He wanted to figure out a new way. So he decided that he was going to start a cab company that would charge so much per mile. So he discovered this invention by the German guy. And he purchased 65 gas-powered cabs from France. This is also in 1907. So he had money. He had money. He was fine. He wasn't, like, you know, destitute. So this, this ride wasn't significantly expensive for him. He was just annoyed by it. Yeah, of course. So the electric car... They've got the dead guy, the fire, and then the panic of 1907, and then they've got a rich guy buying 65 gas-powered cars. Yeah. They're doomed. Which is interesting to me because I, I think, well, where would things have been had they been more successful? Yeah. So he buys 65 gas-powered cars from France. They were originally red and green, but his wife said, hey, why don't we paint them yellow so they can be seen better? Oh, yellow cabs. Yellow cabs. Um, he called his company the New York Taxicab Company. Um, and by 1908, he was running over 700 gas-powered cabs. Um, several other companies started popping up because, hey, he's making money. They all charge 50 cents a mile, which is like $13 today. So really only the wealthy people could manage to get into them. Um, Ford and Chevy said, hey, they're making money. So in the 1920s, they got into the cab company or the cab business, and it I didn't really understand which one it was, but one of them, either Ford or Chevy or someone else, started the checkered yellow cab, and that is the common thing. So that started from the 20s, and that lasted all the way to the 60s. The one that you see on TV, on, you know, different movies yeah, and whatnot. Everything. That's everything. Everything. Yeah. It's the yellow with the checkered down the side. I think even the TV show Taxi were checkered cabs, weren't they? I think, well, weren't, like all the taxis in new york all the same at one point they were and that was this checkered cab yeah, company yeah they kind of took over um during the depression the 1930s new york had 30,000 cab drivers they were there were more drivers than passengers could afford to ride and that's when things started getting bad because it was well i'll get you there faster well i'll get you there faster well what is that going to cause accidents and problems um, so how about you get me there cheaper? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, saying. they, they probably did that too. But so then New York decided, Hey, we can't have this happening. We've got problems happening. So they came in and they decided that they were going to make a, um, taxi monopoly. 
they were going to take care of this. So um, at that point, Mayor Jimmy Walker stepped in and he was going to solve this. He was going to regulate the cabs and form a taxi monopoly. He was going to pick one company that was going to take care of everything. Well, all was well and good until he was accused of taking a bribe from the city's largest cab company, the Parmalee, to become that city's monopoly. Okay. So he was kind of fixing the game. So the next mayor, who was Fiorello LaGuardia, he stepped in and he signed the Haas Act in 1937. And this act is the one that came up with the medallion system. Um, have you heard of that? No. Okay, so in New York, in order to run a ca- taxi cab, you have to purchase what's called a medallion from the city. There's only so many. This is how they regulate it. There's only so many medallions issued. You either have to purchase it from the city or from another medallion owner. Like liquor licenses mm-hmm. in California. Yeah. There's only so many per town, and you either have to wait till an establishment burns down, someone sells it to you, or goes out of business, or the state reissues more. Right. So that's what they're doing with cabs, only it's called a medallion system. It's still active today. Um, in the 1930s, they issued 16,900 licenses, and they eventually dropped that number down to 11,787, and that number stayed the same until the 90s. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, in the 60s, there was a lot of problems with the cab industry. The... A lot of like violence and racial tensions and black people were not getting picked up. So private cap companies started popping up. Um, and in 1967, the city demanded that all drivers with medallions paint their cabs yellow. So if you didn't have a yellow cab, you weren't a cab. You weren't a cab. In New York City, the taxi, the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission, the TLC as it's known today, uh, was established in 1971 and they took control of all of the city's medallions. In the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of crime. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were killed. Um, a lot of drivers were robbed. The first part of the 70s had saw seven cab drivers killed and 3,000 robbed. So drivers were very scared and concerned um there's it started to be more become more difficult to be a driver they had tests that they needed to pass which became a big immigration and um yeah i remember hearing a little bit about that like they wanted you to have like a certain level of english fluency yes and you had to know specific streets and where certain um monuments were and different things and um that led to a shortage of cab drivers because people couldn't pass the test so in the 1980s, crime dropped. We had what's his name come in and Rudy fix, Giuliani and fix crime, and so then we wanted more cabs. Cabs became a driving a taxi became a lucrative job again. But there's the medallions, and so the, the numbers fixed. Well, what's going to happen whenever you have a fixed amount of something? Price is going to go up. Yeah. Yeah, so the price is going up and up and up, and the medallions are costing more and more money, which doesn't stop. So in the 1990s, the crime shot up again, and on October 26, 1993, the drivers in the city actually had a boycott, and they used all of their cabs to block traffic in protest over the amount of cab drivers that had been murdered. Because in 1992, they had been 45 cab drivers murdered, and in 1993... Um, there have been 35 killed. Wow, that's a at lot. That, to that point. So the they decided they needed more cabs. Um, the checkered cabs that we talked about, the last one was retired in 1999. It had served for 20 years. It had a million miles on the adopter. I bet it smelled fantastic. Oh, I'm sure it did. I read somewhere, I didn't put it in my notes, but I did remember reading it, that in the 80s they started using um, retired police cars. As yeah. caps because of the bulletproof glass and the partition in the middle. So um, they so twenty million dollars on the odometer. They've now done a passed a law that the cars can only be in service for seven years, and then they have to be taken out. Um, in the nineties, as I mentioned previously, they decided to add more 
medallions, and they've done this a few times since then. The increase in the 90s was the first in 60 years. Between 2004 and 2014, New York City made $855 million from selling medallions. Oh, wow. The so city made that the money. The city made that money. That's not accounting for private sales. Correct. Um, and most of those from the city sold for over a million dollars a piece. Oh, wow. Yes. So that's, that's from crazy. the city. That's not secondhand. By secondhand, they're selling for over $1.3 million a piece. That's insane. So the last increase that the city did was in 2014. They auctioned off new medallions, and some of them sold for over $1.3 million. They were given, and, and you would think, so you are the guy. You've got the taxi medallion. There's only so many there. They've got, there's another cab company thing that started the city cab, and they're green. I didn't really understand that. They're only allowed to go to certain boroughs in the city, but that's completely separate. It doesn't have anything to do with the medallions. Huh. But the yellow guys, they're, they're kind of guaranteed, well, they thought they were guaranteed a, a good income because that's how you get around. Until Uber? In New York. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. But this happened, this auction was held in 2014. Yeah. So there is a huge debate. Like, I found so many controversial things about whether or not New York City was aware that the bottom was going to fall out of oh. the cab business prior to this sale. Because some of these medallions that these people paid $1.3 million for are worth half that now. They can't get rid of them mm -mm. because of Uber and Lyft. And so Uber and Lyft are causing all these problems in New York. And there's quite the whole big controversy of do they need to be regulated? Do they need to be kicked out of the city? And the, and the cabs go back to the monopoly that they had been granted in the 30s. Does the city owe these people any kind of money or compensation? So I just thought it was interesting that it goes completely full circle from California to New York with legislation for Uber and Lyft. And it all started with legislation in the 1600s with cabs. Well, have the mayor of New York call Governor Newsom. And they can figure it they out. They can figure it all out. And then we'll all be regulated to death. Yes. And we'll never be able to get anywhere quickly and easily. Exactly. <laughs> sounds fantastic. It sounds fantastic. Although I'm not so. really an expert. <laughs> oh, I am not only a drunk, but I'm a tired drunk. <laughs> <laughs> that about does it. As always, you can contact us on Facebook at Crime and Time OTR. On Instagram, we are Crime and Time OTR. On Twitter, we're at Crime and Time OTR. And our email is crimetimeotr at gmail.com. Email is where you, want to, where you will want to send us cocktail suggestions, things Topics. you want to learn about. Yeah. yeah. Or just say hi. Or just say hi. And we also have a new Patreon page Yay. if you want to buy us a drink. Buy us a drink. So that is patreon.com slash crimeandtimeotr. And we're going to be offering some perks for our patrons. Absolutely. I'm excited. See you there. Thank you for listening.